Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out the radio version of the show every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on WDJY 99.1 in Atlanta. We also air on a podcasting network in Los Angeles called the 405 Media. There's a TV version of the show that airs on KMVT 15 in Silicon Valley at 8 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday nights. Both versions of the show air in other states. For these show times plus past episodes, please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. I want to invite all of you in the Building the Future community to join me at SUPEX, the Startup Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, this July 26th, where I'll be the MC. SUPEX is one of the largest and best startup conferences in the U.S. and the official gathering of the Building the Future community this summer. SUPEX has cutting-edge content, a cool startup competition, and a half-day forum this year called Hashtag Women for Women, the largest gathering in the U.S. in 2018 of angel groups, seed funds, and BC funds focused on female founders and female entrepreneurs. For more information, visit www.sup-x.org. I hope to see all my Building the Future friends there. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Rahul Pangam. He's the co-founder and CEO at Simility. Rahul, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I think what you guys are doing at Simility is, is actually really, really interesting and cool. And, and selfishly, I'm kind of fascinated by the whole space. But maybe before we get into all that fun stuff, Let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I grew up in um, in Mumbai, in okay. India, uh, and I, I lived there uh, up until I finished my undergraduate in engineering, right? Okay. Um, and it was sort of a fascinating world growing up because India was still, I would say, you know, early stages of being a developing country. So sort of access to technology was limited. Okay. <laughs> right. I, sure. I hadn't even used a computer until a lab in my engineering college. Right. Wow. <laughs> Versus now, if I look at, you know, I live in the U.S. and I see the access and it's so different. Right. So it's 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 uh, interesting that I'm in the technology world, having not been too familiar with computers up until I was like maybe 17. Right. Sure. But, but I also uh, think that's uh, actually really kind of interesting for people listening. Right. Because a lot of people think that if you weren't like born on a computer, you're kind of screwed, right? And and I I don't believe that. I but and like you know yourself. And as we go through your kind of career and kind of what you're doing now, it, it'll become very clear to the listener that you know it's it's kind of a, it's very much a myth. But but I am curious to step back for a second. You took electrical engineering. What got you passionate about that kind of growing up? Was there like a defining moment or something that made you want to take that, or or what made you want to go into that? Yeah, so I think it it again goes back to like the world around you and sort of what you're familiar with. And I think sort of the most uh, uh, ubiquitous technology was like electrical stuff, right? Where okay. you know people were opening up motors and repairing them, or you had these little kids growing up where you know you could turn on the lights, uh, you know, connecting wires, right? Sure. So that's sort of your familiarity with what you consider as technology in a world absent computers, absent electronics and all of that. Sure. Uh, and so you grow up dreaming that, hey, you know what? I'm going to be really good at this when I grow up, right? I'm going to be able to figure out some of the stuff and, um, uh, you know, and fix sort of much bigger things. And that got me interested in electrical engineering, uh, right? And that was my start to, to technology. Interesting. So... You, you also, well, walk me through your journey from India moving to America. D- did you move to America to get your MBA or, or walk me through that kind of process? Sure. So um, I, I, I completed my bachelor's in electrical engineering, like I mentioned, in India. Yeah. And at the time, um, you know, this was 1997, 98. Okay. And the sort of uh, big buzz around that time was Y2K, right? Fixing yeah, this code totally. at every place, right? Where there was, uh, uh, you know, the it was not an elegant way to handle the change of uh, year to 2000. And so 
India had this massive recruiting push where everybody who uh, who had a remote analytical ability, right, <laughs> even remotely, uh, sure. uh, you know, competence in that area was pushed into, hey, I have this job that pays you three times more than an electrical engineer. And by the way, I'll, so my first job, right, it was programming. Okay. And literally they told me, we will teach you what to do and you can do it. You have to have no background in computers or programming. And for me, that was fascinating. Well, wow. you pay me for me to learn. <laughs> Who says no to that? Yeah, totally. That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> so, so that was my start, right? Okay. Uh, and then I realized that, hey, I had learned a lot about programming um, in, uh, you know, in, in the year that I spent in this sort of Y2K uh, environment. And I had this huge knowledge about electrical engineering. And I had to make, blend the two, right? I wanted to apply my newfound understanding of programming to how you control electrical networks and so on and so forth. Interesting. Uh, so I quit my job uh, and I came to the U.S. to get a master's because there wasn't much in India in terms of that kind of advanced uh, technology at the time, right? In terms of electrical networks and sure. how you use computer programs to control that. Uh, so came here for my master's and uh, essentially ended up working at GE uh, post doing my master's where um, we were writing algorithms to decide, you know, what generator to bring up, uh, how much capacity to ramp up during the day, night, all of that could be automated, <laughs> wherein uh, depending on the loads and people's usage patterns, all the electrical networks and where the, uh, you know, how it flows through distribution networks, all that was controlled, right? Sure. Um, and sort of that was my uh, my foray, my first sort of professional job in the U.S. postmasters, which was uh, controlling electric networks, um, grids, uh, through the use of sort of sophisticated al algorithms, right? Um, and uh, you know, post that, um, you know, GE is great in terms of building techno business leaders. <laughs> Sure. Uh, and so as I, as I progressed, I realized that I was starting to manage projects and sort of customer engagements. And that got me interested in the business side of things. Went back, uh, got my MBA from Michigan, and then uh, came to Google, right? And that led me down the journey I'm on, on today, right? Sure. Um, but sort of that's my, that's my pre-Google world, right? That's how I got there. Sure. So you were at Google for a number of years in a, in a bunch of different roles. Walk us through kind of what you kind of did at Google and then what, and up until you decided to co-found your own company. Sure. So uh, right after MBA, uh, my MBA, uh, I, I uh, joined Google and uh, I was um, managing a group that uh, was responsible for monitoring click fraud, right? Okay. Uh, and the easiest way to explain click fraud to folks who are not, um, you know, who are not familiar with the space is, look, uh, if I write a blog, um, uh, you know, about, uh, I don't know, bicycles or, uh, you know, cooking, sure. uh, 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 I can put ads on that blog and um, uh, I get money every time somebody clicks on the ad. Sure. So, so what a lot of savvy people do is they essentially either have bots click on the ads so they can make more money, or they they have a, a bunch of click farms uh, uh, with sort of low cost labor doing those clicks, right? Sure. Uh, and so, essentially, advertisers are paying for clicks that uh, for that are not real users uh, that are manufactured clicks, so to say. Um, and this was a big, uh, big area of focus for Google simply because, you know, 99% of the revenue came from advertising sure, <laughs> and yep. making sure advertisers trust that that money is going in the right place. You need to monitor these clicks and make sure that all the users are real users and not sort of these manufactured clicks, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I started managing that team uh, 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 coming out of my business school background. Um, and you know, Google was on a very high growth path at the time, right? This was 2007, 2008. Um, uh, you know, I was, I was probably the first, one of the first 10,000 employees, and the company has grown much bigger since then. Uh, 
uh, but a lot was happening, right? And we were building new advertising products, uh, new products for like social engagement, like Google Plus, uh, Gmail was taking off. And each of these product lines had their own um, uh, sort of challenges and, um, um, you know, product considerations around how to control fraud, spam, abuse, right? Sure. So on Google+, Plus, you could have a lot of, like, fake followers, um, or you could create fake accounts. Uh, uh, on ads, you could you could put ads that were violating policies. So, for example, if you're not allowed to advertise for certain products, right, uh, but you circumvented those policies somehow. Right. Um, or uh, in Gmail, it could be spammy email, right, right. Uh, and scams. So this was sort of a very prevalent um, uh, sort of need across all the products, right? Sure. And there wasn't a lot of, like, prior... Um, best practices, because a lot of the things Google was doing, it was at the forefront of innovation, right, in the digital world. Totally, yeah. Like, it's um, never been a problem including, before, right? Yeah, or, or maybe it well, was very early. Everybody was in the same boat, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a so problem, but they were the like, first people to really kind of start to solve it. Is that fair? That's a better that's way of right. putting it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's absolutely, right? And then the same with search, right? You could game search rankings, and people thought you could, like, you know, stuff keywords and get yeah. to the top of the search rankings and all of these, there wasn't a huge lot of like established literature around how to sort of manage these, right? Sure. Uh, and so, so sort of we figured out as we went along, we sort of built the systems and so on and so forth to, to manage fraud, abuse and risk and protect our users um, in this sort of new digital world. Because even for our users, this was the, their first foray into what digital is, right? From a social standpoint, a communication standpoint, bu you know, buying things standpoint, searching for information standpoint, right? Sure. Uh, uh, and, and so it was interesting because we were seeing sort of the evolution of a new way of uh, you know, how people would buy, how they would interact, how they would communicate, and how you could protect them Right. And, uh, you know, their payments and their accounts and everything from bad actors. Uh, uh, fascinating journey. Right. I did that yeah, in sure. 2014 from 2007 to 2014, which amazing, amazing ride. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can imagine because like, I remember those days when Gmail was catching on and, and kind of like I remember that time because I just I've been in tech in a long, a long time, too. And it's always kind of fascinating to hear from people like yourself that were, were there and you're like, I remember like when that got launched or like I was playing with that or so it, it's always kind of fascinating to, to hear from people like yourself talk about this. Like it sounds really nerdy, but I, I love it. So walk me through, how did you come up with the idea for Simility and, and why did you decide to, you know, leave Google and, and co-found your own company? Yeah. So, you know, part of it, uh, as I mentioned, right, people were getting used to this new world. Um, and they don't fully comprehend, um, you know, what risk they were opening themselves up to, both businesses and consumers, right, sure. <laughs> uh, as they interacted in the digital world. Um, and, and I felt like, you know, I could uh, count a handful of companies on my fingers, right? So Google, PayPal, uh, and maybe one or two of the top banks that had the armies of people and the infrastructure and the technology to actually manage this risk really, really well. Sure. <laughs> and the vast majority of businesses had no clue <laughs> what was even going on. Forget able to manage those risks, right? Fraud, yeah. abuse, um, uh, scams, and so on, right? Uh, and so there was this huge need um, for solutions that help them manage that risk. And they weren't going to build all this internally in-house in at a bank or a big tech company or an e-commerce uh, site and so on. They would rely on experts to build this for them and, and, and monitor it for them, right? Right. Um, so there was this huge need, right? And so we had learned about attacks and how fraudsters think and how their mind operates, how patterns unfold in these sort of seven years, just like, because it's a, it's a problem where you have an adversary who's constantly learning and adapting. Sure. And so it's all about learning how they think, right? And then you can build systems to, to sort of take care of 
the attack. But uh, there's a lot of just learning from experience, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, totally. Um, well, and I like Google uh, still pays people yeah. to like find holes and bugs in in their own software, and other companies do it too. Like they have these like bounties that like you could win hundreds of thousands of dollars if you like break into this one Google system or whatever, right? So it, there's like a like coming from like being in the trenches fixing this stuff to basically leaving Google to to basically do this for other people because you're basically doing what you guys what you did at Google for seven years for businesses now is is that a very simple high level version of of what you guys are doing now? Uh, that is that is uh, uh, the only caveat I would add is you know the way I see uh, digital right disrupting industries, right? right? Uh, the tech industry and media were sort of at the early, early industries that got disrupted, right? Sure. And that trend followed, right? So the next group of uh, businesses that got disrupted was commerce, right? So sure. buying stuff, whether it's digital goods or physical goods. Uh, and the next group that got disrupted is, is fintech, right? Like so financial services. And the one after that will be insurance and then sort of, you know, government, you know, and everyone is in some stage of early disruption, but like full on disruption, it's moving through these waves, right? And we're like, oh, we were at the early, early stages of the first group that got disrupted. Right. And other people are going to see these same issues three years from now, five years from now, eight years from now, 12 years from now. Sure. No, totally. And it is it is up to us to make sure that we can help them understand how to how to sort of protect themselves right yeah so applying the knowledge in different verticals right rather different than google right so commerce and sure. banking and insurance but the same understanding of like bad actors and and uh, how they how they sort of move and and attack right sure so was there like a defining moment that were like, okay, I need to do this on my own, or you just like, what made you decide to actually like go off and co-found the company? Um, I think you know the idea was brewing in my head for like a few months. Okay. Um, uh, and I, I feel like, you know, the time when we started twenty fourteen, uh. You know, entrepreneurs say quite a bit that, you know, um, uh, you know, we made this happen and all of that. I think, you know, timing is a huge part, right? Sure. The market had the appetite for what we were doing. Right. Uh, investment was uh, readily available, right? So we could find angel investors uh, and so on and so forth. Um, I could find smart people to build a team around. Right, because right. all of these are important ingredients for an eventual successful company. Otherwise, it becomes a sort of hobby, side project. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I didn't want that. Right. We wanted to build a uh, formidable company that uh, we could take IPO. Right. Sure. And so, you had to have these basic ingredients as you started the venture. And we were lucky. The timing was perfect. Uh, we were in the right place, right, in Silicon Valley. Sure. People were excited to, like, fund us and come work with us. And um, so a lot of that played into sort of just getting an – because leaving Google for anybody <laughs> yeah, fair. is a huge decision. Yeah, well, because right? a lot of people, that's kind of like their dream job, right? And then you you left to go do your own thing, and I, I think it's great. But, you know, yeah, there's a prestige around working there, right? Oh, absolutely. Right. And to your point, uh, I grew up in India, right? So everybody mm -hmm. attaches, you know, sort of their self self worth to like what university they went to, what gotcha. company they work at. Right. Sure. <laughs> and then like leaving sort of the, at the time, there was a number of employers in the world and the biggest brand name around. Right. Sure. Everybody knew Google. Yeah. And they're like, what, 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 what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> you left Google to do what? <laughs> No, so, so it's interesting, right? But but the entrepreneurs listening, I think they should take uh, you know they should take some bit of like encouragement from this that hey, this is these risks pay off. Hundred <laughs> percent agree. So I want to dive deeper. I, I think people have a good understanding of kind of what you guys do, but I, I really want people to understand what exactly do you guys kind of do at uh, similarly. Perfect. Yeah. So. 
Immunity essentially provides a fraud detection and risk management platform. Okay. Uh, our primary our primary sort of uh, customer base is businesses, right? So e-commerce stores, okay. uh, payment processors, banks, right? And what they use Similarity for is, let's say, you know, you're creating a new account at a bank using your mobile phone or you're applying for a new loan. Okay. Or you're trying to access um, your already existing account or you're trying to make a payment or you're trying to issue, uh, you know, accept credit cards or pay using a credit card. All of these transactions, there's a potential for uh, fraud, right? Sure. Either somebody else using your identity to create an account or logging in after they have compromised, your credentials are compromised, or uh, from a payment standpoint, they have stolen credit cards and so on and so forth, right? Right. So the way to tackle all of these, right, is essentially understanding normal behavior of users when they're doing these activities right. and abnormal behavior. Okay. And I think big data analytics and machine learning have evolved to a point where you're able to precisely pinpoint what is risky and what is trusted, right? Okay. In these in Auto these transactions. Automatically, right? That's right. Okay, yeah, okay. Keep going, sorry. I just That's wanted right. to make that clear. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and so, so that's the capability we provide uh, to our uh, clients, right? Who are large businesses, large banks, large payment processors. Um, uh, in order to manage their risk of, gotcha. of fraud, right, and abuse. Sure. Instead of them building their own internal kind of fraud detection team, they basically get you guys to handle it. Is that a simplified version of that? Absolutely. Okay. So I, I don't really want to go too technical, but I'm if I'm a bank or a business and I'm looking for, you know, fraud detections and, and I reach out to you guys, how do you work with me to get it set up without going kind of in the technical kind of space of it, like high level? How does that kind of work? Yeah, so I mean, we um, we have a couple of mechanisms for uh, you know getting data from uh, their existing databases into our system, okay, and then giving them back a decision score, um, you know, whatever is needed. Got you. Um, and you know, we have, you know, either we have JavaScript on the website or SDKs on the mobile phone, which is picking up some amount of, uh, you know, device information or behavior information just to know if this is a, a hacked device or so on and so forth, right? There's malware. And then bank is also sending us, um, sending to our software uh, transaction information, right? So person A tried to initiate a, you know, $2 million payment, right? right? And so we combine that data from those two sources and we say, well, uh, you know, person A has never done more than a $2,000 transaction over the last six years. Right. By the way, whenever they log in, the IP address always says Canada, but this time it sort of looks like a spoofed IP from what we're understanding the device to be. This is an anomalous transaction bucket, right? Right, yeah, um, okay. Or like they put in a transaction in California and then like an hour later, they're like across the world. You're like, well, that's the second run's probably fraudulent. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, okay. right? So they send us data through these sort of JavaScripts and SDKs and also through the backend if they have any backend database information through APIs, right? Okay. That's how we get the data. Okay, and then as a company or a bank, I have like dashboards or like an interface that I could kind of check in on, on what's happening or, or how does that kind of work? Yeah, so that's another big part, right? Like, you know, either at the time that you're sort of monitoring this or post-fact, you want to understand the sort of broader behavior, right? What sure. is normal? What is what is anomalous? Are, are we within that uh, trend? Are the trends pointing in the right direction? Are the business metrics being met and all of that? So we have a workbench where you can monitor all this. There's a graph databases, there is dashboards, uh, there's control mechanisms which you can use. Uh, but essentially giving them a way because there's so much data and it is so overwhelming. I think the challenge is to like distill it down to a humanly understandable right. <laughs> you know, manifestation, sure. which is what we have tools for as well. And they're super effective because, you know, understanding a fraud attack if you can't visually see the patterns like time sequences and graph networks and all of that, you probably will just miss it, right? If I just dumped the data in a spreadsheet and gave it to you, you wouldn't understand what to look for. Totally. So 
so it's a huge part of what we do for them is showing them visually uh, what happened or what is unfolding and and uh, giving them an idea as to what's going on and, and and suggesting what they should do. Okay, interesting. That's actually really fascinating. Thank you. So, uh, and then I'm assuming you guys provide some sort of analytics as well, which is even a little bit more high level. Yes, we do. So underlying our this entire system is like, you know, big data analytics, um, a sort of risk engine, decision engine, uh, which are mining the data and sort of providing um, uh, insights, right, uh, uh, which, which get used by the user. So we are providing, we are providing the analytics, very, very relevant to the use cases that, that the customer is interested in. Sure. I, and I, I, again, I, I don't really want to go too technical on this because it's a, a total black hole, but how do you guys handle kind of your own security at, at kind of without getting into the craziness of, of the black hole technical stuff of that? Because obviously you guys need to be super secure in your, in your own self, right? Yep. Uh, so this is one part where, you know, I have, a, um, I, I tend to think that third parties are better uh, at, Sort of securing or uh, validating that you are secure versus me self-certifying, right. <laughs> uh, and so we we work uh, with auditors. So that the, the there are two or three standards, right, which are very very big in 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 my world: FIs, right. payments, PCI uh, DSS, uh, SOC two, uh, GDPR. Which essentially these standards say, you know, what are your hiring practices? How is the data accessed from your company? Where is it stored? Is it encrypted? Uh, it's basically like a long laundry list of things that have to be in place to ensure that you know you're good stewards of your customers' data, right? Sure. Uh, and we we basically open ourselves up to an audit from a certified auditor who comes in and every six months, uh, depending on the type of audit, three months, six months, they come in and audit us for all these practices, right? Interesting. Um, uh, because again, in, in my world, because you're dealing with financial services, uh, uh, and a, a lot of our clients host this inside their network. Sure. Um, so, so they have their own security practices. Uh, but just because of the nature of our clientele, we have to be like top of our game in terms of meeting all these criteria. And we almost always say. You can have a third party come in and check us. Don't take our word, right? Uh, and and that's how we. That's what we sort of follow. Sure. No, I I think that's great. I I just I think it's important to cover just in this conversation. Um, but but I want to kind of switch gears a little bit. You mentioned it quickly. Um, you have an uh, uh, you have a, basically you have developers can integrate with you guys. I I really want to kind of cover how that kind of works and and what you know, internal kind of developers can actually do to integrate with you guys? Yeah, so, I mean, um, typically, so we have our published APIs on our website, um, you know, both, so we have developers on both sides, our end users as yeah. developers, and third parties that want to integrate with Simility um, uh, uh, to provide services to our end users, right? So we okay. have both both kind of developers. Sure. So, uh, so the first one, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. So the first group of developers, let's say you're working at a bank and you're using Simility. It's pretty easy. We have, you know, we have JSON uh, uh, sort of API formats where we, we publish uh, our APIs, um, you know, the formats, and you can you can use that format and you know do data exchange with Simility, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty straightforward. Now, if you're a third party, uh, um, uh, so there are many, many uh, third parties in this business, right? So you're, you have a curated blacklist of, uh, you know, bad IPs, or um, you provide mapping of like phone number um, to name, right? These are like many, many uh, small sort of boutique services that, that exist in different geographies for different use cases. Yeah. And you all are trying to sell to a bank, right? Sure. So you want to plug into a data orchestration hub, which can suck this data and help the bank make risk assessment. And 
you can't tell this directly because without the context of other data points, uh, you're valuable, not but not as valuable, right? Sure. So if you work with a platform like us, uh, you become tremendously like, you know, maybe 5x more valuable than just as a data feed, right? Sure. Uh, uh, and so we work with third parties as well uh, to help them integrate into the Similarity platform so they can provide services to our end clients, right? Enterprise, FIs, and gotcha. payment service providers. Sure. And, and then, like, obviously, like, web apps and Android and iOS can work with you guys as well? Yes. So okay. we have uh, SDKs for uh, Android and iOS. Perfect. I, I thought it was worth mentioning because I, I think that's that's actually quite quite a fascinating space. And I think if, if developers had to build that themselves, well, like you guys are doing, it's a, it's a whole company in itself, right? So it makes way more sense to outsource the to somebody like you guys if somebody's building something that, that needs, you know, your guys' services. You, you wouldn't build it internally into your own stuff. It's just, it's so much work, as you know, because you're building it. Um, or have built it, I should say. So I, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious, though, to, to change gears a little bit. There, there's so much stuff kind of happening in the news with, you know, fraud and, and kind of some, some trends. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to, you know, scare people and it's not all doom and gloom like sometimes it's portrayed in the media. But what kind of stuff have you seen or, or your or your thoughts on some things, you know, that maybe people should at least think about or consider when they're they're trying to prevent, you know, fraud. Yeah, yeah. I mean I think uh you know some of the points I mentioned will be relevant to business users and, mm -hmm. and um people who are trying to protect their users and, and manage their risk. And some of these might be applicable to uh, end users, right? Who are consumers of services and how they can protect themselves. Sure. Um, but I can mention like, four, you know, three or four or five just points Perfect. that good to think about, right? Uh, sure. Again, I'm not trying, you know, I'm not going to try and scare people because there's, there's opportunity and there is risk, right? And so I'm going to, I'm going to paint <laughs> that picture like a sort of a nice mixed balance, right? Yeah, that's perfect. Um, yeah. So, I mean, let's think about, um, you know, even if I look at my way of operating right today in the world, right? Uh, about three years back, if I wanted to deposit a check um, in the U.S., I would actually go to an ATM, go to a bank and, and deposit it. Today, I scan it on my mobile phone. Right? Totally, yep. Um, so I feel like this is, I consider us to be living in the sort of mobile first era. Yep. Uh, and and that, that, that has done a very lot of different things, right? Like you get instant access, uh, uh, you know, low friction uh, to, you know, applying for a loan or scanning a check or creating a new account, paying for something, what have you, right? So that is one where in a developed world, you've moved from sort of offline online and mobile first primarily, right? You're not even saying that's one of my channels. That is my mode of operation unless you force me into a different mode. Right. Um, and then there is this whole concept around inclusion, right? Financial inclusion. Like there is a whole subsection of society that was excluded from traditional financial uh, systems, right? Because of, you know, in developing, in developed countries, maybe because of like, you know, uh, credit scores being not that high or in, in developing countries because they simply didn't have access to the traditional banking systems. Right. And they now all have a mobile phone. So, right, there's a whole new group of users who have no history from a credit standpoint, from a risk standpoint, right? And they're using mobile phones. And as a financial institution, as a business, you want to sell to these users because that's a tremendous explosion in the way you can sell and engage and grow your business and so on and so forth, right? So that's sure. the opportunity, which is mobile first changes the game in a lot of different ways, especially with the sort of fintech revolution, right? Sure. Uh, now put that against uh, the risks, right? So you have, you know, we read in the news about, um, you know, the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, right? Like yeah. uh, uh, developers have access to this data feed. So essentially, they know a lot about me. They know a lot about you. 
uh, which can answer most questions pretty well, right? So, you know, where did you live in 2008? Okay, I have an answer for that. Because these are the questions that get asked when you create sometimes apply for a loan or a bank sure. account, right? Yep. Um, th- then you have the breaches, right? So I'm looking at Saks and Fifth Avenue, uh, MyFitnessPal. Yep. So now your credit card numbers are out there. Uh, and then you look at um, sort of the Equifax breach. So your sort of identity is out there, right? Yep. Um, I think all of us should assume that some part of information about us is out there that other people have access to. Just in your mind, be ready for that. Don't think like, oh, I'm not the guy who will get impacted by that, right? Just (laughs) being prepared is better than being ignorant. (laughs) Yeah, no fair. Uh, (laughs) So I would say that's the second trend, right? All this online access and this high volume data being available on the black market just means you have to be prepared that these credentials, these identities, these credit card numbers are out there and somebody has it and be prepared for that, right? And so what we're doing is we're helping as people transact online, right? Whether they go to a bank, whether they pay for something, whether they create a new account, we are helping ensure that when those transactions happen, we are able to identify the risky ones from the trusted ones. Because A, I know that digital is going to be the mode of operation. There's a scale, there's an anonymity with digital that isn't there in the physical world. I know that a lot of this data is floating out there. So if you tell me I'm going to sell you a solution that's going to protect you and nobody's going to take anything from you, I would say that's great, but I can't assume that data is not going to be getting out, right? Sure. So you, you, need, you, you need to live in a world where you, you acknowledge all this and say, you know, when that time comes, when somebody tries to use my identity, when somebody tries to use my credit card at a place, right, that similarity is there to help you assess that risk and block it, sure. right? Um, so what I'm saying is, you know, assuming all of what's happening today is true, we are here, <laughs> That's sort of the safety net, right? Because at the end, everything is means towards an end, right? All this is this data is being stolen, so somebody can abuse it for some other reason. And we have to make sure that we have sort of covered all the bases in helping businesses understand when these kind of attacks happen, right? When these identities, when these cards get used, how to make sure you can recognize that and protect your consumers against that. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I I think like even like I think a good example or well, tell me if it's a good example. Like something happened to me a couple of years ago. Um, my credit card somewhere I don't know got online and and somebody bought fifteen hundred dollars worth of uh, they were like phones, but they were like desk phones and they had the huge numbers. They were kind of meant for like old people that have trouble kind of pushing buttons or or to see. And the transaction went through because I work in tech. I order phones, not all the time, but I, you know, I kind of run the latest phones. And so that one went through, but um, the, the same person tried to order something online from like a sporting goods store. And I'm, I can't remember ever, I can't remember the last time I was in a sporting goods store, never mind bought anything. So they flagged that and that's how they caught the original kind of $1,500 phone transaction. But like, that's basically a simple example of kind of what you just talked about, right? Where based on my habits, you're like, well, Kevin could have bought a $1,500 or a bunch of stuff at, at this online kind of phone store because he works at tech and he's bought phones before, but he hasn't been to a sporting goods store and, you know, basically the history that he's owned this credit card, that's probably fraud, right? Is, is that a really simple version of kind of what you just talked about? Absolutely. I mean, that is spot on, right? That's, uh, you know, you have a normal behavior pattern in what you buy, where you buy from, how you buy, what time of the day you buy. Yeah, sure. Uh, And, you know, as long as the things form within that norm, um, you know, you can reasonably trust the transaction. uh, But once they start moving away from that norm, um, then you should question that, right? And, And, you know, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Sure. You mentioned kind of some other examples. Do you, do you want to keep going with those? Because I, I think these are great. Yeah, so, you know, uh, other examples are like um, somebody, um, you know, getting a hold of a synthetic identity, 
Okay. And uh, applying for a loan. <laughs> uh, and, you know, using a doctor driver's license to scan, uh, you know, being able to answer these. So, you know, I, I got some information about a profile from Facebook. Uh, I have access to their stolen identity. I bought it on the black market. Um, and I can't walk into a bank and create an account because you can compare my face and the license and say, oh, this is not the guy, right? right. <laughs> but I can apply online. <laughs> right. And I have all the credentials, right? I have a fake, you know, I have a doctor driver's license image. I have the credentials. I can answer any question you ask me based on social footprint information and this and that and all of that available online. And so I can create a, I can apply for a loan as somebody else. I can create a fake account. Um, uh, and this is very prevalent now because, uh, you know, you're allowed to create online accounts without physically showing any kind of proof, right? And it's a very different world uh, online, right? Sure. Um, uh, the the example I mentioned about check scanning, right? Uh, people might doctor the image of the check, and you know instead of ten thousand, make it like I don't know fifty thousand, sure. or they might deposit the same check once through the mobile app, and then second time in the bank. And sometimes banks are trying to keep customers happy, so they process the check immediately, even though they haven't quite confirmed that this check will be the payment will be made from the other bank, right? Right. So all of these things are like situations which are so different because of the, the online mobile access and anonymity. Sure. Uh, 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 and I can go on and on. There's like a long laundry list of these things. <laughs> no, sure. I, I'm, I'm curious though, um, is there any advice that you would give people to maybe not say like you shouldn't post that, but that they should at least maybe take a second to, you know, think about if they want that information online, because I think a lot of people don't even know that posting a photo or of this or that, or, or this data can be used against them. But is there something that you should, you'd maybe recommend that, you know, maybe could be used down the road that maybe people don't think about, or at least if they're going to post, they should at least know the risks of posting. Yeah. So <laughs> I think one thing to sort of just take a step back and mm -hmm. think is be mindful about um, what you're giving to get something because there's no there's no free apps right, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. no free social network you're you're not paying for it with money <laughs> but you're paying for it with other sort of your digital life information right. right. And so, you know, in this sort of Cambridge and analytical beach, I sort of read somewhere that, you know, certain people have like 70 apps that connected to their Facebook accounts, sucking up all kinds of information. Sure. And people are just like, oh, this is free. I'm going to click. And, you know, this just paints my face blue. Right. right? <laughs> well, a great fun thing to have. But what did you give to be able to get that app? Right. And I think we don't consciously think about these things because like, oh, it's free. Yeah, you know, something I downloaded on my mobile phone. It's like, oh, well, it's going to point me to the nearest, you know, haircutting place or give me a coupon when I walk into a mall. But it's sucking up my location information. It knows where I am. It is sucking up my buying information, all of that. Right. So what is the benefit I'm getting from this app? And what am I giving up? to get that benefit. I don't think people make a conscious trade-off in their head. They're just like, oh, this is free. I'm going to download it. Right? Sure. Uh, so I think we need, to, we need to acknowledge that, especially in the light of these sort of breaches. You know, what are you getting and what are you giving up to get that? And if you make a conscious choice, well, I'm okay to like, you know, I want to share pictures with my friends and I'm okay if, you know, um, pictures can be seen by others or might end up uh, in a place where I don't want them to end up and I'll only limit myself to certain kind of pictures or, you know, I'm not going to have my kids' pictures on there. I'm just going to have my pictures on there, which is, which is fine. But I think you need to think through that, right? Which sure. is, uh, uh, it's an unconscious decision saying, oh, I'm going to use this app, right? Without thinking through what you're giving up. No, I, I, I think that's really good advice. And I, and I kind of, why I asked the question is because it's, it's good for somebody like you that has the background in this to give this kind of advice, right? Because I think we're kind of at an interesting point right now. And like, do you, well, obviously nobody knows for sure, but do you think there's gonna be a big backlash at kind of some of these 
freer kind of services or, or apps? Or do you think the general public just doesn't care enough yet because it really hasn't directly affected them yet? Like, or, or is it kind of too early to tell? Uh, I, uh, you know, I think it may be slightly too early to tell. I mean, I have okay. a biased view, right? Sure. <laughs> if you, you know, if you work in a sausage factory, you have a very different definition of like meat than the person who eats the sausage. Sure, sure. Uh, so because I deal with the bad actors all the time, I just have a heightened level of awareness, uh, right. about these things. Um, I, I do think that, you know, people, People have taken sort of privacy, data security, um, uh, identity online very casually. Uh, uh, and I do see when I look at Europe, for example, there's GDPR, there's PSD2. Government is, is bringing in regulations, right? The, the regulatory bodies are clamping down saying, look, you have to be the right to be forgotten. Uh, every institution has to do a bare minimum to monitor things. Uh, you have to protect the data in a certain way. You have to maintain encryption, all of that, right? Because just like I mentioned earlier on, you need third parties to mandate and monitor that for you. Right. Uh, and I think that is coming, right? I think the sort of regulation, this is, you know, it's great. Innovation fosters in sort of tech. Uh, but there are certain aspects around their privacy, security, identity that that need to have a better framework right of, of of how the information gets used where it gets stored how is it stored who can use it who can access it uh, these are questions that will define whether there's a backlash whether people have a level of comfort and, and all of that but I think we're in the early days of, of, of that right um, answering those questions yeah the other thing that I and again I, I obviously no, no idea where this is gonna go I, I think the thing that that I'm, I'm gonna find really fascinating is is just even, I'm 35, just so we have some context, but um, the, like when, if you've been posting stuff, good, bad, or other online since you were like in your teens or maybe even younger, when you're like 20 or 30 or 40, like your whole life is basically potentially free online, which could be good or bad, or, or maybe other like I think that to me just that concept is like completely fascinating. Yeah, that's uh, you know that is so true. I mean I don't think of it this way. Right? Like I said, right until I don't know age. I'm so I'm 42, right? So until okay. age 30, I really didn't have a massive footprint online, right? Sure. Social footprint or financial footprint or what have you, right? Yeah. Uh, so like more than half my life is not there. But you're right. If I was born in this post-digital world, my entire life is on there. <laughs> like from my parents posting my baby pictures all the way up to me posting voluntarily stuff online and others involuntarily posting my stuff online. Sure. So so how do you live in that world? Because you could potentially know anything and everything about anybody, right? Sure. <laughs> which, is, which is so true. Well, and then you don't even know necessarily what other people have posted about you online, right? Like, so it, it's interesting just how that kind of sorts itself out going forward and and again like I, I don't really want to scare people I just want to get people kind of thinking about this stuff when they're posting their kids photos online or, or stuff like that like not saying that there will ever be consequences but it's something to you know maybe rethink about absolutely right just be aware be mindful make those trade-offs don't just be automatic and casual about you know using stuff sharing stuff uh, and, um, you know, like I said, there's a huge opportunity in terms of financial inclusion, social, you know, I'm communicating with people I've never been in touch with for 20 years, right, because of social networks, Sure. right? And so, so that opportunity is there, right? Unbelievable. Never in my life I would have been stayed connected with that many people or buy things from the other corner of the world that get shipped to my house, right? But I, I'm making those trade-offs consciously. If I really need X, I'm okay to give up why, right? Yeah. And that's fine. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's great. So we're, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but I want to make sure we kind of cover everything that you want to cover. Is there anything else that, you know, you guys do at Simility that 
maybe we didn't cover that you want to kind of mention? Uh, no, I think, you know, you did a great job, I think, covering the entire spectrum, you know, from sort of industry landscape to, you know, what the users should care about and how businesses, uh, you know, should think about similarity and, you know, specific examples of, you know, use cases. And um, so I think, no, you did a great job. I, I this is very rare. I'm not at a loss of words uh, most times, <laughs> well, <no> that... <laughs> but but now I am. <laughs> no, that's that's good though. I, like I think, that just for kind of to close out the show for the listener, I think <clears throat> where can they get more information about you guys and and maybe schedule a demo? Yeah, so they can visit our website, um, you know, similarity.com. Um, uh, to, to schedule a demo. I think the other thing, to your point about, you know, how can users protect themselves? Okay. Uh, you know, how can businesses get smarter about protecting their users, right? Sure. So banks, uh, payment providers, e-commerce stores, uh, media companies. We have a lot of like webinars, white papers, solution studies, case studies, um, which are freely available on our website. You don't have to use Simility, but just like consumers need to educate themselves and know the trade-offs of like, you know, what am I doing online and what's the cost? Businesses need to need, know the trade-off. Okay, I'm launching this new product. It's going to give access to so many people, to so much data. What do I need to do to make sure I'm doing enough to protect my users, right? Sure. And there's a lot of material available on our, on our website, right? right? Like I said, from webinars to white papers, so that you can educate yourself and you can come up to speed without ever using Simulity, right? Sure. Uh, so do that No, I don't... If, if you're interested. Yeah, I think like I actually have your resources page up right now and you guys have case studies kind of broken out between like banking and e-commerce, marketplace, payments, tutorials, webinars. So you have tons of resources here. Like I'm just scrolling through it actually like right, right now. So, um, well, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be on the show and... I look forward to keeping in touch with you. And if people want to kind of get more information about you guys, it's S-I-M-I-L-I-T-Y dot com. That's right. Perfect. 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 Well, thanks again for doing this and uh, have a good rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Kevin. You have a good day too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Also check us out on Facebook at Building the Future Show and follow us on Twitter at Building Show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.